Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. Good morning, you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. That was a nice little remix between Backchat and Agenda there. We're your Saturday morning fix for art, music, politics and trash from a feminist perspective. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Mari Stewart. Today we're asking whether the MeToo hashtag asks too much of sexual abuse survivors. Plus, we'll be looking at um, the black activist who actually started the movement 10 years ago and also the French equivalent, Rat Out Your Pig. Yeah, Rat Out Your Pig is pretty extra in terms of call-out, this kind of call-out campaigns. And the internet activism generated by the Weinstein scandal continues to galvanise survivors of sexual assault, and it's been eye-opening for members of all genders, but it's also, it can also be re-traumatising, and in some cases, it's called on the silence of women of colour to achieve its goals. So we wanted to talk about whether the harm outweighs the help in these kind of campaigns, and we wanted to let you... We wanted to know how it's been affecting you um, on 0409 945 We're very excited to be interviewing writer Julie Coe about Boundless, the first ever festival focused on Indigenous and culturally diverse Australian writers and writing. It will be held at Bankstown Arts Centre on Saturday the 28th of October. Yeah, we're really excited to speak to Julie and in keeping with FBI's Go For Gold theme supporter drive, We're going to look at the gender pay gap in Australian sport and we wanted to know your thoughts in our still quite uh, new segment, Thoughts That Count. So let us know what you think can be done or should be done about the gender pay gap in Australian sport on 0409 945 945. Yeah, we're going for gold today as part of FBI Radio's current supporter drive. FBI, um, as you may know, is an independent and not-for-profit station and we rely on our supporters to keep us on air. It's our supporters that make it possible for us to remain independent, to take risks and push boundaries, especially here on Agenda, we like to think. Yeah. So if you want to support the work we do, call 833-22945 and become a supporter today. There's plenty of prizes to go around. Yeah, and the prizes are so good. And on Agenda, we're giving away a Mushroom Music Gordy prize pack. So we're teaming up with Gordy to say thank you for becoming a supporter. So once again, call us on our supporter drive, 833-22945, to win a copy of Reservoir on vinyl, an accompanying photo book with stunning pictures from their recording at home and abroad, plus a double pass to see their Sydney leg, um, to see the Sydney leg of their Oxford Art Factory tour on November 30th. Sign up by calling now, 833-22945, and we will be calling out your name at the end of the show. Yeah, lots of cool things to win today. Um, including this new album. It's Gordy's Reservoir. Um, This track is called On My Side and you're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. But I would 
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And the Harvey Weinstein scandal continues to shine a damning light on the industry's insidious sexism and culture of harassment that exists in the film industry specifically. And while we'd all like to follow um, in the footsteps of actress Carrie Fisher, who is in from Star Wars, um, who once sent a cow's tongue to a known abuser in the mail, the internet is where many survivors and allies have, come, have unified against predators in their industries and communities. Today we're looking at who is helped and who is harmed by these kinds of activisms and how women of colour in particular have been left out of the cause they in fact started. You might have seen the MeToo hashtag on your Twitter, Facebook or Instagram feeds recently. It asks if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote MeToo as a status, we might give men a sense of magnitude of the problem. Hashtag MeToo has been picked up by people like Björk. On a recent Facebook post, Björk said, I'm inspired by the women everywhere who are speaking up online to tell my experience with the Danish director. Because I come from a country that is one of the world's places closest to equality between the sexes, and I am, at the time, came from a position of strength in the music world with a hearted independence, it was in- extremely clear to me when I walked into the actress's profession that my humiliation and role as a lesser, sexually harassed being was the norm and set in stone with the director and a staff of dozens who enabled it and encouraged it. Like Björk, hundreds and thousands of women have picked up the hashtag. However, a recent Washington Post article has asked whether it asked too much of survivors. Before hashtag MeToo, there was hashtag Harvey Wein- my Harvey Weinstein. Um, before that, there were others, hashtag what were you wearing, hashtag you okay sis, and hashtag survivor privilege. Each started by a woman of colour. The hashtags asked women who've experienced sexual harassment or assault to make themselves known, to reveal a part of their story. And this has given comfort and kind of lessened the isolation and shame of assault for many people. But for some of our listeners, um, they've expressed that for even from the first time they saw the hashtag, they knew that it wouldn't empower them. And it's really not something you can escape. You've probably um, experienced that it. It's all over your Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, and obviously that's the idea. It's to demonstrate the widespread abuse and harassment um, and how widespread that it is. Um, mm. But if you're someone who's triggered by these stories, um, it can be really difficult. And I think while we were talking about this earlier, how... Um, a lot of women in particular are talking about the kind of bravery and how much they admire other survivors that have come forward um, with their stories um, and how much strength that takes, but also how weighed down they are by the constant reminders of their own trauma. Mm. Yeah, and again, it really puts the onus on the survivor to educate others and can have a real um, risk of reopening old wounds that have a pretty damaging effect on them and others. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to kind of forget those experiences. So I imagine that it is very, um, yeah, really traumatizing. And I think because we talk about, you know, people, uh, we talk about statistics in terms of um, people that have been raped each year, but we don't talk about those people that have perpetuated those acts of violence. And it's that kind of passive voice that is used most um, in the language and studies around abuse. And even something like violence against women is a really passive construction. So Jackson Katz has a great quote about how the passive voice actually has a political effect because it shifts the focus off of men and boys and onto girls and women. The French, however, have taken a slightly less passive tone with balance tampoc, 
or Rat Out Your Pig, which certainly has a very different ring to it, I think. Um, it was started last weekend by Sandra Mueller, a New York-based French journalist, and the hashtag essentially invites naming names. Woody Allen, for one, has come out in defence of Weinstein, saying that the Me Too hashtag and its kind of adjacent causes um, could lead to a, a witch hunt. So I'm sure he would have some very interesting and totally relevant um, things to say about the Balance Ton Poc yeah. campaign. <laughs> Even so, do you think the hashtags like that, um, do you think they'll act as a deterrent for predators or is the cost on survivors too high? Particularly when people have told us that they've seen their abusers liking Me Too posts sometimes by their victims, messaging them, or even people screen, screen capping private posts. Let us know your thoughts, um, 0409-945-945. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and I think it's a good time to also address the fact that the Me Too movement was actually spearheaded by activist Tarana Burke. She's a black woman who began the crusade 10 years ago specifically for women of colour. Yeah, not many people know about this. So the 44-year-old said she began Me Too as a grassroots movement to aid sexual assault survivors in underprivileged communities where rape crisis centres and sexual assault workers weren't going. Uh, She says, It wasn't built to be a viral campaign or a hashtag that is here today and forgotten tomorrow. It was a catchphrase to be used from survivor to survivor to let folks know that they were not alone and that a movement for radical healing was happening and possible. So the campaign's motto is empowerment through empathy. Oh, this really reminds me of what we were talking about a few weeks ago in terms of um, intersectional feminism and the woman who, um, again, a woman of colour, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term um, and who said that, uh, like so many of these things, it is um, coined by women of colour to um, reflect and respond to their particular lived experience and it's co-opted by a broader feminist kind of movement Um, and effectively erases them from its own definition and from the kind of positive outcomes of that movement. So I I feel like we come back to it time and time again on agenda, Mm. this dynamic, I guess. Yeah, I think we've seen that black women and women of colour have really been sidelined in the current conversation about sexual assault, um, in part because of Rose McGowan, who's been at the centre of the controversy and who was muted on Twitter for a post recently, um, which led to the hashtag um, women boycott Twitter. Yeah, which almost immediately demonstrated that solidarity is for white feminists. Um, McGowan really didn't come out of this looking very good. She centred the experience of white women and came for women like Ava DuVernay when they opted to remain on Twitter and to keep talking and keep being heard. Um, And it's just this thing of like, if you enjoy a certain privilege as a white person, it's not a good idea to ask people of colour for their silence in a culture where they are systematically silent. So McGowan also sent out some reckless tweets about swapping um, the word woman for the N-word, which just seems very strange and sensitive and just like illogical in how it erases women of colour. Also, Ava DuVernay is a genius. Like I would really pick a different target if you're going to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Eva DuVernay's actually come out saying that the Weinstein revelations won't change Hollywood. Well, one person who does think that it will make a difference is Tracy Spicer. So she will um, reveal the names of long-term offenders of sexual harassment in Australia's media industry and has called on her social media followers to share their stories of harassment and abuse. So if you have any information and you would like to contact her, um, you can uh, let her know at Tracy Spicer on Twitter. Um, And in the music industry, Isabel Manfredi of The Preachers is also compiling statements from people in the music industry. So if you'd like to share your stories and information... 
um, of sexual misconduct, you can privately and confidentially email her at isabellameetoo at gmail.com. Alternatively, if you do need to speak to somebody, um, we recommend you call the New South Wales Rape Crisis Centre on 98196565. After this track, we're going to be looking at the gender wage gap in Australian sport. And we want to know what you think, um, where does the responsibility, responsibility lie in closing the gap? Is it with the codes, the players themselves, the consumers of the sports, the media or TV stations? Text us on 0409 945 945 and we'll read out your thoughts on air very soon. And this is all part of FBI's Go For Gold supporter drive, where we're asking for your help to keep us on the air and remain independent. So call the phone room on 833-22945 and become a supporter today. You'll be in the running to win heaps of cool prizes um, from Gordy's prize pack to a fairgrounds double pass. Right now, though, this is Big Thief with Coma. It was released earlier this year and was included in NPR's recent list of 20 songs that say Me Too. Um, and Big Thief is... Um, is a song about supporting women's recovering from violence, a task that often falls to other women, as you may see online recently. More on the hashtag MeToo coming up after this. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.
You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio and it's time for our feminist news segment, Go Home Everything is Terrible, which is going to be super brief this week. Um, so in the news, New Zealand has elected their first, their youngest prime minister in over 150 years, Jacinta Ardern. And I think um, Backchat may have gone into this a little bit, but she is 37 years old, which really puts all of our lives into pretty harsh perspective. Mm-hmm. James is off The Bachelor, so there is really no point in turning on the television anymore. And the internet thinks that Melania Trump has been swapped out for a fake. Also, Ivanka Trump think, um, thinks that she had a punk phase. So it's that's kind of the lightest news that I could come up with the week, for the week because it hasn't been lovely. Um, and so we thought that we'd focus more on the exciting supporter drive that's happening this week. Yeah, lots of exciting stuff happening on FBI all throughout the week. We're giving away a Mushroom Music Gordy prize pack today. We're teaming up with uh, Sydney artist Gordy to say thank you for becoming a supporter. Um, so call the phone room on eight double three double two nine four five. They're waiting for your call and you could win a copy of her new album Reservoir on vinyl accompanying a photo book with stunning pictures of the recording session um, and abroad, plus a double pass to the Sydney leg of Gordy's tour at Oxford Art Factory on November 30. So sign up now, call 833-22945 and we might be calling out your name at the end of the show. Plus, it's only $10 a month and you'll be in the running to win Double Pass to Fairgrounds, which is just a lovely festival down in Bury on the 8th and 9th of December. Katie and I went last year and it was so nice. This year you can catch Future Islands, The Shins, Gang of Youths and heaps, heaps more. So that number again is 833-22945. Thoughts that count. Agenda on FBI Radio. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio, and this is our brand new segment, Thoughts That Count, where we want to hear from you what you think about feminist issues. We have a special Go For Gold themed segment this week for FBI's supporter drive happening right now. And to keep FBI Radio running, we need your help. So sign up as a supporter today. Our phone room is eagerly awaiting your call on 833-22945. Yeah, so this week, um, TV presenter Lisa Wilkinson announced that she's leaving Channel 9's Today Show to join Channel 10's network um, for the project after 9 refused to pay her the same as her male co-presenter, Carl Stefanovic. So get that money, Lisa Wilkinson, I guess. Um, also, the la- last week, Norwegian Football Association announced that their women's national team will now be paid the same as their men's side. Um, they're the first national FA to have ad- um, devised an equal pay deal, which is really cool. Mm. But back home, top female sports stars are struggling to attract livable wages and earn a lot less than their male counterparts, according to a report highlighting the size of the gender pay gap in sport released last year. So Women on Board's Gender Balance in Global Sport report found that Australia's top female soccer players received a base pay of just thirty dollars to $41,000 a year which is about half of Australia's average full-time salary of almost 79000 So that's seen many of the players supporting themselves through other employment, which can have a real effect on the quality of play. So um, the report also found that in cricket, our top female players earned a retainer between forty and 65000 a year last year, which makes up 4-7% of their male counterparts' 90 
$900,000 retainers. Um, but that was last year. There are positive signs, and earlier this year saw a historic boost to the women's cricket game, which um, was a pay deal, pay deal reached between Cricket Australia and the Australian Cricketers Association. Following months of bitter negotiations, um, the pay deal pay deal will be applied to all male and female players for the first time in Australian cricket and the deal is being lauded as the biggest pay rise in the history of women's sport in the country but many other sports in Australia are lagging. So for our Thoughts That Count segment this week we thought we'd ask you who you think, um, who where the responsibility lies for closing or at least lessening the gap um, in Australian sport. We'll be hearing from sports journalist Kieran Wagstaff and Mary Constantinopoulos, the founder of Ladies Who League, um, and more. But we also want to hear your thoughts on the topic. So text us on 0409-945-945. We had planned to talk to Anne O'Dong, the principal um, and editor of the women's game, but sadly she lost her voice this week, so we hope she's feeling better. But essentially we're going to um, discuss the Football Federation Australia and Professional Footballers Association announcement of a landmark two-year collective bargaining agreement from uh, for the W League. So some of the agreement's key elements included a minimum payer salary, increased base player payments, new minimum league spend, football and non-football income protection for injured players, a new maternity policy, access to the PFA player development program and football boots and runners provided. Yeah, I think it's easy to look at the kind of disparity between men and women's um, sports in terms of the pay gap. But there's lots of, um, I think there's a, what this CBA shows and what it, um, what the changes in codes like cricket demonstrate is that there are also big changes that need to be made in the conditions as well. Mm. We're asking you today on Thoughts That Count, where does the responsibility lie to make these changes? Do the professional associations need to do more or the TV stations? Or is it up to the players to negotiate? Get in touch with us on the text line 0409-945-945. Lending his expert opinion is Nine Sports journalist Kieran Wagstaff here. I've um, been a sports journalist in Toowoomba for a little over four years now. And while I'm still at the bottom of the game, I guess I have noticed massive, massive improvements and um participation in the female game you know one sport that we focus on a lot here is rugby sevens we've had at any time you know up to six or seven local Toowoomba and Darling Downs girls in the Australian rugby sevens squad and that's a sport that's really paving the way for women you know a new competition came in this year a national um, university competition and it's it's fantastic to see so many girls playing and You've only got to go down to club days here and see that girls want to play rugby. You know, they want to play rugby sevens and they look up to the likes of Emily Cherry and Charlotte Caslick and girls like that who are in the Australian squad and have been for a number of years now. And, you know, sports are following what rugby sevens is doing. Obviously, the girls have had a lot of success, which which helps, you know, success breeds success, as they say. And um, winning in Rio and the World Series really helped I guess, drive a little bit more funding into the sport, which is always important. But you've got to look at the likes of the AFL. You know, they're going into their second year of the AFLW League and teams are already saying that by 2020, you know, they'll, they want a team in. 
they want an AFLW side and it could almost be get to the point where it runs in conjunction with the men's competition. Netball is another one. They've signed a free-to-wear, a new free-to-wear deal uh, that'll see their national competition get played on live television for everybody to watch. And I think as the sports and the games grow, the funding will come and when these free-to-wear deals get signed, that brings more sponsorship, which brings a lot more drive into the game. And while I can't really talk about what girls are getting paid as opposed to men because I, I honestly have no idea. I I know I am finding that the opportunities are almost on par. Uh, you've got cricket as well is another one. You know, the Southern Stars, the Australian women's cricket team, are starting to play a lot more test matches. You know, they've got their Ashes coming up. They'll play a day-night test match for the first time ever. Uh, so they're breaking boundaries and closing the gap which is really exciting and like I said before these young girls that are coming through they now can see a career in sport. That was Kieran Wagstaff from Channel 9 and I think he raises a really interesting point about visibility Um, and if you look at kind of even in American uh, American sports, um, in its history, the way that athletes like Billie Jean King and Venus Williams and like the U.S. women's hockey team sitting out of the um, ice hockey team sitting out of the um, the World Championships, I think when you're enjoying a lot of success, it gives you a lot more leverage um, to kind of negotiate for more uh, better conditions and more equity in pay. And I mean, in a lot of these cases, it just comes down to being able to even just um, have health cover and um, a living wage, basically. But we want to know what you think also. 0409-945-945. Max is an avid NRL fan and works in ratings for a TV company. He says, I think it's the organisations as a whole. They use the excuse that women's competitions aren't as marketable as the men's and therefore isn't as much money to be made. But if you look at the women's all-stars match, there's definitely an appetite for their sport, um, for women's professional sport. I think the AFL is definitely at the forefront of the WAFL league. They've launched and actually televising matches to get the word out there. But if you look at the NRL, there's no women's competitions at the moment. And there's been this back and forth all year with the male players wanting more money and a bigger cut of the TV money. So I guess it's hard to work out a a higher pay rate uh, for the women in league when they're completely focused on the men at the moment, which they see as their core product. So that's Max, an NRL fan working in TV ratings, speaking about the gender wage gap in Australian sport. Do you agree? Let us know on 0409-945-945. Well, Ladies Who League is an Australian weekly sports podcast and each week founder Mary Constantopoulos is joined by a panel of female sports journalists and athletes. We heard from Mary on her thoughts about the gender wage pay gap in Australian sport. Hi everyone, this is Mary Kay from Ladies Who League. When it comes to the gender pay gap in sport, we've all got a role to play in closing it. As fans, it's our job to get our bums on the seats to make sure that sponsors and advertisers know that women's sport is a product worth investing in. If you're part of corporate Australia, it's worth getting behind women's sports, like plenty of brands like Samsung, Chemist Warehouse, Harvey Norman, Lendlease and Build Corp. But we've still got a long way to go and we've got to make sure that our sports are marketable and professional So for sports like rugby league, the first step is making sure that we get a women's competition up and running in the next couple of years.
To finish off our supporter drive, um, uh, special of Thoughts That Count, here's a track that's definitely going to get you motivated to go for gold. It's Peaches with Close Up. And remember, if you want to keep us on air, become a supporter of FBI Radio. We've got um, a gaudy prize pack and a double pass to Fairgrounds Festival to give away. Give us a call on 833-22945 to sign up or to upgrade your sponsorship. Stick around. We're very excited to be talking to writer Julie Coe after this. Peaches, you're on Agenda on FBI Radio, and we're joined now by Julie Coe. 
Julie Coe is the author of two short story collections. Her second collection, Portable Curiosities, was shortlisted for the Reading Prize for New, York, New Australian Fiction, the Steel Rudd Award and a New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. And her stories appear in the Best Australian Stories 2014, 15 and 16 and Best Australian Comedy Writing 2016. She's also the editor of Books Actually's Gold Standard 2016 and a 2018 Stellar Prize judge. So, Julie, thank you so much for coming in. You're, you seem Thanks to be a very me. decorated writer and a, a like fantastically funny writer as well. Um, and I was wondering, you didn't, you're not a kind of MFA student, so I'm wondering how you made that transition. I think for a lot of people, it can seem very daunting to become a writer. So how did you go from political economy to thinking, <laughs> I can do this? <laughs> I actually started studying... Um, arts and law at um, university and I did first year English and got really bored and dropped it and ended up taking up a double major in government and a minor in political economy. So um, at the time I didn't really know where I was going. I had vague had a vague idea that I wanted to be a lawyer just because I'd wanted to be a film director early on and my parents were like, you really need to do something that's <laughs> going to earn you some money. Um, and about halfway through uni, a film producer got in contact with me and he'd read a story that I'd written in uh, for the HSC um, in wow. his own year 11 chemistry class. And he's like, I think I've always wanted to adapt it. So he contacted my school and we met up. And I think at that point I started thinking, this feels so much better than everything that I'm doing right now. Mm. I really like that someone resonated with my work. And so we ended up making the film 10 years later. Um, and that made me start thinking about writing. But then I continued uh, and I went to be a lawyer and eventually quit. So it was a really tumultuous kind of um, time for me. And when I quit law, I became a lollipop lady, almost for the story. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a kind of Haruki Murakami yeah. kind of story in itself. And so I hadn't, I mean, it would have been useful to have finished a literature degree, but I never did. Um, and so when I'm talking about writing, I'm also often feeling like maybe I should know a little bit more about writing. But um yeah, I, for about five or six years, I basically sat in my room and taught myself. I did a couple of online courses and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And you are kind of, uh, you have been put into this category of this new wave of Australian writers. But I was wondering if your your work is kind of, I'm not sure if you would agree, but like, it seems like magic realism and you have a lot of kind of food and ideas about gender and femininity in there. So I'm wondering if you get compared to like Banana Yashimoto or like Laura Esquivel or something like that, or you feel yourself more kind of in that Australian canon. Well, that's my I first we'll comparison <laughs> to those writers, but I do get compared to a lot of different writers who I haven't read before. So mm -hmm. when I started writing short stories, it was people like Peter Carey. Um, but I think I had been writing like, reading writers like Haruki Murakami and Boris uh, Vion and Roald Dahl. I mean, when I first started writing, I was like, there's a Roald Dahl-shaped hole in my life. Um, as an adult and I'd read all his work and I just thought I would really like to write bedtime stories kind of funny dark fairy tales for adults and I strayed a bit from that at the start but I think that's kind of what I accidentally ended up with yeah right so, so you kind of I think you said that you made a shift from like kitchen sink white middle class <laughs> stories to like is there something in particular that gave you the confidence to make that shift or I think first books are always in part autobiographical, so although it's not very clear from my book that it is, um, 
Yeah, I think the the story that was adapted into a short film was about it was like a a white middle class kitchen sink story where a guy loses his wife, um, and it's all about his grief about that. And when I started writing again, um, I was kind of thinking about writers like Matthew Salsis in the U.S. Um, who had written something in The Rumpus about how he'd done the same thing that um, he used to write white characters and, and used to think there's something that's kind of a bit inauthentic about this um, and it's a result of um, having read the canon and having been taught that um, that kind of writing is the kind of ideal and so I think to start again um, I felt like I needed to write from a more authentic place. That's so interesting that you say that. I know that one of the books that you talked about, oh, I can't remember the name of it, but Owen Leong does the... Um, Tom Chow's Look at His Morphine. Yeah, because I, totally I was thinking, I haven't Tom's read way. that, but I, I know Owen Leong, and his work is so much about that kind of feeling of inauthenticity and kind of coming around to his authentic self as an Asian Australian artist and yes. kind of negotiating that and about whiteness and so that's so yeah beautiful yeah. but I but mean Tom is someone if I were to talk about the Australian canon I was kind of unaware of it because I hadn't really been taught much of it at school and then I skipped you know um, English literature at uni and so um, when I kind of came out I um, and started writing again I saw this display of Tom's book um, in Kinokuniya in Sydney and it was immediately attracted to it and started reading it and it's so funny and it's so weird um, and I was like wow I can write really wildly and be an Asian writer and not have to write about the typical things that are expected of an Asian Australian writer which are you know the migrant story not that there's anything wrong with that kind of story but I'm really interested in broadening the spectrum of what we write. Right, well, I have to say that about your writing as well. It's so funny and it is so weird. And I was thinking in particular about the three-dimensional yellow man, um, which is from, a, I think it's from the collection of Portable Curiosities. Yes, it is. Yeah, so I thought it was so funny and it kind of, part of it reminded me of like um, Korean telenovelas, like how just really normally the news reporter will turn around to one of the characters <laughs> and be like, you have to follow your heart. And they're like, okay, I guess I will. And like this guy kind of coming out of the screen and everyone's like, oh, that's weird. Anyway, we'll get him to talk on a panel. And it's kind of like, it's weird, but it's, it's also very normal at the same time. And it's so funny. And I thought that it was funny how he, he's invited to speak on these panels, this man that's come out of the cinema and the screen and he learns all about Fellini and he has all these opinions on is it like the like the way that women are um kind of treated in Fellini's films and everyone just wants to ask him what it's like to be a yellow man and <laughs> and then he ends up kind of appeasing them and I was wondering if that was um if you think that's the kind of experience for culturally diverse writers um that you can write these rich texts and have these really well-drawn characters and then when you talk to someone they just want to ask you about that your kind of experience as like what does it feel like to be this rather than about your writing yes I think um being I, I mean I don't want to speak on behalf of culturally diverse writers I mean that would be quite hard my experience is that and the way I've seen writers interviewed on panels is that there is so much curiosity about identity and um, part of the reason for my writing the three-dimensional yellow man was that uh, it was all kind of new stuff to me when I was a kid. There's, there's a okay. So the three-dimensional yellow man is about a yellow ninja in a three-dimensional Hollywood film who steps out of the cinema into George into a cinema on George Street, um, to the horror of local cinema goers. <laughs> and 
there's a, there's also a character in there who's a yellow woman who steps out of the of, of the screen after him and she talks about not realizing that she doesn't have blue eyes and that's actually something that is from my childhood when i was growing up in sydney we lived on a pretty white street and it was a lovely street and we used to play with the italian australian kids next door and i went around when i was about 4 or 5 trying to convince everyone that i had blue eyes because i really thought i did my first crush i'm pretty sure was like greg from young talent time and so there was so much um, around me that um, wasn't about identity and so I think uh, it was only really at university that I started thinking, oh my God, I'm a yellow woman and maybe the, the fact of how I look is, is influencing the way that I'm treated and the kinds of opportunities that I have. And so um, the three-dimensional yellow man is really about that and that kind of curiosity of other people that highlights for you everywhere you walk um, and in your daily life that you are very different. Yeah, right. And um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, hopefully a panel that will be different to that, the <laughs> Boundless Festival yes. um, in Bankstown. So you're going to be speaking um, on that on a panel about the changing landscape of Australian um, fiction yes. or literature in general. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, what people can expect from that? Yeah, so Boundless is... Um the first ever festival focusing on Indigenous and culturally diverse writers and writing. It's going to be about, at, uh, I think, the Bankstown... Um, let me see. <laughs> Bankstown Arts Centre um, next Saturday, and it's free. So I'm on a panel um, with um, Ellen Van Nieuwen and Michael Mohammed Ahmed and Benjamin Law, um, and we're just going to talk about the, the changing cultural... land the. Um, changing landscape um, and I guess boundless is all about um, the boundlessness of ideas and um, the richness of the cultural diversity in this country and highlighting that and so we're kind of talking about breaking out into into a kind of conservative literary space um, with very different work um, and so it's going to be a really interesting day. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting panel as well. So we're very much looking forward to that. Thank you so much for coming on to speak to oh, us. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Um, and we're going to leave you today with a track from Fatima Al-Kadiri. You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. Al-Kahf